Amen. Good morning. While the praise team is transitioning off here, and thank you all for a great job this morning. A couple things have happened in the past week. First of all, do you remember me telling you about Jim Peters last week who was given the miracle of life, snatched back from the doorstep of death at stage four? (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) Stage four stomach cancer. Uh, There it is. Can somebody get me a water real quick? Room temperature would be my preference. That doesn't matter who, just grab me a room temperature water. I'm on this medication this week that makes me cough a lot. Water helps. Anyway, um, he came to church this morning. Was was at stage four uh, stomach cancer, had it in four places total. He was sitting in worship during the nine o'clock service. Isn't that incredible? God has restored him. I thought for sure I would be doing a funeral for him this week and not seeing him in church or have already buried him, unfortunately, and God snatched him back. So that's wonderful. Uh, Second thing, I just want to address this quickly. Uh, Many of you all have asked me throughout the week. The Southern Baptist Convention uh, gave the third-party report. There was a third-party investigation into uh, abuse cases in the SBC. Thank you. And uh, one second. The report came out. There were some shocking things in there. But I want you to think about it this way. So you go to a Southern Baptist church, this shouldn't really make you feel bad because it's kind of like this. It's like anytime a bad cop is busted, right, all cops get labeled as bad, right? That's kind of what happens. But aren't you glad that that cop gets taken off the force and it's a better force when that happens because not all cops are good. Or not all cops are bad. Not all cops are good, I guess, too. But we remove the bad ones. And it, it, make, it, it makes a better overall uh, a police force. And in a similar regard, whenever we stop trying to hide these cases and we deal with them openly and try to help those victims openly, uh, we're making a better church and we're honoring Christ more. So I want you to think about that, uh, that we're not going to be a place or a haven for abusers to run to, but we're going to deal with those sins just like we would any other sin in the church. And so that is a good thing. All right. Okay, it's not good what happened. We should be brokenhearted for the victims and we're going to try to do what we can. When I go to Anaheim in California, I will be voting for the strictest sanctions on abusers that are unrepentant in particular, and I will be voting to help those victims that have come out in the report. So just so you know, that's how I'm going to vote as your pastor, but that's what's going to happen. All right, with that behind us now, let us look on to Luke chapter 19. If you're joining us for the first time, or the first time in a long time, we are working through the gospel of Luke, working through the gospel of Luke. And we're in what's commonly called as the travel narrative here. Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem. He's making this trek from Jericho going up to Jerusalem. No matter where you're in Israel, you're always going up to Jerusalem. And we've already seen the parable last week of the ten minus. And here we are in this section here that is in all four Gospels. What we're going to look at today is critically important, right? So in ancient literature, if you want to show the importance or significance of something or an event, you don't just talk about it one time or two times, but all four Gospel authors record this event of the triumphant entry. This is usually or oftentimes referred to or preached the week before uh, Easter because it starts the beginning of what, you know, the more... What do you call those? I can't remember the word. The churches that are closer in line with the Catholic Church would call Holy Week. Uh, we can call it Holy Week too, that's okay. But it starts their sort of calendar march that way towards Easter. But, you know, when you arrive at God's truth, you arrive at it. And we're here at it today. It preaches just as good on Memorial Day as it does Palm Sunday, okay? So we're here and we're in this text right now. So Jesus is coming in. This is an important text. And one thing that I want to, as we read this, here's what I want you to look for in the text this morning. 
There's an overarching theme in the text today, in every one of these verses. And the overarching theme I want you to see is this. Jesus Christ is King of all. Jesus Christ is King of all. And you will see this emerge in multiple places. All right. So here's the Word of God, church. All right. Hear it. And we had said these things. He went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to uh, Bethsaida and to Bethany, at the mountain that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where, an entire, where entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet set. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought, and they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set him on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road, as they were drawing near, already on their way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice from all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the, high, and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to, them, said to him, Teacher, Rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that made for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surrounding you and hem you in on every side and tear you down on the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Amen. May God have blessing in the reading of His holy, inerrant, infallible Word. I pray He writes His truth on all of our hearts because the grass withers, the flower fades. Say it with me, church, if you know it. But the Word of our God endures forever. All right, as I said, what I want you to be on the lookout for in this text is Jesus is King of all things. All right, here we are. Now, this is a very well-known passage. As I said, Jesus writing in, it says colt, means donkey, same Greek word. Um, this was a royal animal. You see in the Old Testament, oftentimes, kings would ride in on a donkey. For example, in the Old Testament, when David was, was leading Israel, and he desperately he came on the city of what was Salem then, he changed it to Jerusalem, 
uh, city of peace, right? He wanted to take that city for the Lord. The Lord had given it to him in a promise. And as they came up to it, just like Jesus, it's on a hill and it's fortified. And the inhabitants of the city at that point kind of made fun of him. He said, our lame and blind will defeat you in battle before you ever take this city because they thought their fortification of being on a hill, sort of like for those of you who watched Obi-Wan Kenobi this weekend, right? They had the high ground, right? So they thought they were in good shape, right? They got the high ground and they're fortified, right? Well, there's one weakness that Salem had. And the weakness that Salem had was how they got their water in through through an aqueduct there in the base. And what's David do? He says, all right, men, If you'd like to go kill some blind and some lame, because it's a little tongue-in-cheek there, come with me. And he climbs up the aqueduct there that they had digging down, 14, 18 feet, and they take the city. And David comes riding into Salem, which he's changing the name to Jerusalem, right, for uh, for the Lord there. Uh, we, We see that he's riding on a what? He's riding on a donkey. That's right. Zechariah 9, 9 prophesies that the Messiah of Israel will come riding a a donkey. That's right. Zechariah 9.9 says that. In fact, if you go to Israel today, you can find Orthodox Jews who believe the word and try to stick to it as best they can. They, They reject Jesus as the Messiah, but they're still waiting on the Messiah. And they use this term Messiah's donkey to just mean the person or persons who do the dirty work. So in context, let me give you what, what that means. If you go to Israel, there are two kind of groups of Jews, mainly those who are Orthodox, conservative believers in the Torah, and those who are more liberal Jews that live in Israel today who don't practice worship on a regular basis and who don't go to the temple and who are not interested in doing any of the things the law calls them to do and are not looking for a Messiah. They're just liberal Jews who were born into Jewish genealogy. And what the conservative Jews in Israel say is that the liberal Jews, with all their money, uh, they're ushering in, you know, we've formed a nation here. They're helping to build back Jerusalem as it should be. And they are the Messiah's donkey. They're kind of doing the dirty work. It's sort of a tongue-in-cheek thing the conservatives say to the liberals in Israel. You guys are the Messiah's donkey to prepare the way for Jesus to come. Well, we know, and if you've been with us or if you've watched the study on Wednesday night with Daniel, this past week we looked at Nebuchadnezzar's dream and how Jesus comes at the perfect fulfillment of time after the Babylonians and the Persians and the Romans, right, and the Greeks, and Greeks then Romans, and they have a unified language, unified road system, and Jesus comes so the gospel can go optimal all throughout the known world. In a similar fashion here, when we come to a text like this, We are learning some things here about Jesus. And one of the things I told you to be on the lookout for here is that he is king. What are a few, and and one of the overarching things that just really jumped out at me that I think Luke is pointing us to is the fact that Jesus is not just king of humanity or king of the Jews, he's king of humanity. But Jesus is not just king of humanity in this passage, Jesus is king of all creation. What did it say about this donkey that Jesus rides in on? Had it been trained yet? No one had ever sat on this donkey before. This don- those of you who, I know Logan does equestrian stuff, you usually don't want to be the first person to sit on a horse, right? That's usually not the one you want to be. You want to be further down the line to somebody who's got one trained, right? And the donkey, I, from what I gather, are a bit more stubborn than even horses at times. So they're even a little harder to, tra- is that fair to say, harder to train than a horse? And here Jesus can sit on the back 
of an untrained donkey that's never had a human being sit on them before, and it obeys him. Why does it obey him? It obeys him because he is the king of kings. He's the king of all creation. He is Lord of all. That little statement in and of itself is a very Christocentric, um, you know, God-given, glorifying statement that he can sit on the back of an untrained donkey and it will obey him. All right? It's not going to balk or kick him off, right? Uh, something else that we see here in this passage that Luke is drawing our attention to, second of all, is this. So he's entering the capital. We've already seen from another message. You can go back and watch if you're not looking at them. How in Jericho, the elders came out to meet him. Remember that? It was, a, it was a very much part of the custom of the day. And so the people of Jerusalem, his disciples that are there, they're coming out to meet him, right? And no doubt, Pharisees are going to be where the buzz and the action is, right? They want to be seen as the people who are about and in the know. So they're going to go out with them, even though they're not disciples of Jesus. And as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, as this event is happening here, they're crying out and saying something to him. Luke, in particular, wants us to take notice here of all the people that are in the crowd, first and foremost, of the disciples. Because you remember what I said, there's probably a crowd of 500 or so that Jesus has got and, and has, uh, has been following over the years. You know, this had been near the Passover time, and it's estimated, I was reading an article the other day, like 250,000 lambs were usually sacrificed at this time period. It's estimated for the Passover supper, you do about 10 people for lamb. You can do the math. I think it adds up to around 2 million people descending on Jerusalem. And of that 10, 2 million that are there, there is a group of people that are disciples of Jesus that have come out to welcome him in. So it's not everyone in Jerusalem that's there. But it's a percentage of people who know about him and who follow him. And the Pharisees come out to see what all the hubbub is about. And what do the disciples say? What do the Pharisees hear him say? Because they take direct objection to it, right? What are they saying there? What, what are they chanting to him in that passage? What do they say? Right? Tell me what they say, church. Yeah. They're, they're calling out to him, and they're actually quoting Psalm 118. Did you know that? They're quoting Psalm 118. But they've changed one word in that psalm. They've changed one word in Psalm 118. And this is what the Pharisees are flipping out about. This is why the Pharisees try to say, to, hey, Jesus, you need to call these guys down. They're causing a problem here, right? Uh, they're, they're chanting to Jesus and they're calling out to him. They're changing it to king, right? They're saying there, uh, Jesus is coming in. They're quoting Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But Jesus' disciples wasn't putting a word there. They're interpreting and adding the word king in there. They are calling him the king. And the Pharisees don't like this at all. <coughs> but he is the king. And their cries and their worship of him are right. Now, let me, let me pump the brakes here and say, if you remember from last time, if you were with us, they are thinking that Jesus is going to ride in like David did in the Old Testament, like I described to you earlier. And he's going to be the conquering victor over the Romans. They're going back in their mind to the era that is the golden heyday of their, their, their people, their Jewish people. And that's David and Solomon. That's the heyday for Israel. Right? That's, the, that's the golden era. You know? People are obsessed, you know, in our country, people are obsessed with the 1950s. That's like seen as a golden time. Right, because this is what human beings do. Now it's becoming the 1980s. As I move into middle age, it's like everybody looks back on the 80s, like they did on the 50s. You know, it's just like great golden time. And those of you who lived through the 80s, you know, it was good and it was bad both. What it was a little bit of this and that. 
But anyhow, uh, we tend to romanticize the past. And human beings in general, here's what we do. If we don't fully understand something or don't understand what God's doing or don't understand how God's moving, what we want to do is go back to a different era. Oh, I mean, sorry, era. Maybe I intentionally said that that way, right? To another time that we're more familiar with. And this is what the disciples are doing. Remember what I've told you, the kingdom is already not yet. It's two-phase. Jesus is coming in to die on the cross. He's not going to be running the Romans out this way. He's coming in to fulfill the plan for the forgiveness of sin and extends God's grace to the Jew first, as Romans says, and also to the what? To the Greek, to all men, women, and boys and girls everywhere. This is the first phase of the kingdom. This is what he's coming to do here. But they think this is like the millennial reign, knocking down all governments. We're going to reign supreme over all the nations. They don't understand it, right? Even though they're rightly chanting, he is the king. Blessed is the king. And the, the Pharisees, remember what Jesus said about them a long time ago? He said, you Pharisees, you sit in the seat of Moses. You're the keepers of the law, right? They hear this. They hear them chanting, the disciples calling Jesus the king. And they don't like it. They don't like it for two reasons. Actually, three reasons they don't like it. One reason they don't like it is because they're calling him the Messiah. And to call him the Messiah is to call him God and Lord. And so they're putting him on a pedestal with the one true and living God. And they don't like that. That sounds blasphemous to them. Second reason they don't like it is they're rather comfortable in their seat and position in Jerusalem at the time. And they're not ready for the apple cart to get upset. They like the money that they make and the position that they make. And they like being viewed as pious people and making the money they're making and doing so. And the third reason they don't like it is because all they can fathom, all they understand, and all they want is the old broken covenant, the old system that could never, that was just a foreshadow of the coming covenant, but it could never fully pay for sin. And that's the system they want. They want that to continue on. They want Herod's temple. They want the Passover as it is. They don't want it to move forward into the new covenant. They don't want any of that. And that's why you see this reaction on their part. You know, Jesus, we get to your, you're a rabbi and you got this like eclectic group of 500 that follow you. But you need to calm them down here because they're calling you Lord. They're calling you on par with God, creator, king of all. And what's Jesus' response to the, to the Pharisees? What's he say? What's his response? Verse 40. What's he say? I tell you. If these, these who? These disciples were silent, the very what, church? The very stones. And I don't know if you've ever seen pictures of the path from Jerusalem to uh, Jericho or Jericho to Jerusalem. There's a lot of rocks, okay? You're surrounded by rocks on all sides. There are rocks for robbers to hide behind. There's all kinds of rocks everywhere. What's he saying here? He is making the point that saying these disciples, even though... Their frame of reference is wrong. They're saying the right thing. I am the king who has come to Jerusalem. I am the one ushering in here. And I want you to hear something else he's saying in this as well. Remember in the Old Testament when Adam and Eve were created and when they fell in the garden. It launched sin and therefore death into all of creation. It wasn't just Adam and Eve who would face death after the fall. It was going to be horses and fish and dolphins 
And elephants, don't you hate it when elephants die? Like, I'll, part of me always feels bad anytime an elephant dies. I don't know why I feel that way, but I just don't like to see elephants die. But they die, and they die because all of creation suffers because of the sin that entered in from Adam and Eve. And we wouldn't have done any different, friend. If we were in the garden, we would have fell just as hard as Adam and Eve did. But what I want you to see is the gospel today, and this is what Jesus is saying. I want you to hear what he's saying. It's not just about you and him. It's not just about you and him. God is redeeming all of creation in the gospel. Do you see that in the text? Here's what Jesus is saying. This moment right here where I'm coming into Jerusalem, where I'm heading to the cross to usher in the new covenant and the new kingdom, this two-phase effort, this is the moment that God's people has been waiting for and that creation has been waiting for, as Michael read a minute ago, it's been groaning, longing for this moment to happen. And if the disciples did not proclaim who he was, the rest of creation would. Because all of creation has been waiting for the king to take his place in Jerusalem. Do you see that? Isn't that beautiful and amazing? Do you see this arch here of how Jesus is king of all, and not just the Jews, and not just us, but all of creation? Verse 41, Luke draws our attention to another phrase that I don't know that are in the other three. It may be there. And if you're reading this quickly, you may be tempted to slide over it. And when he drew near, he saw the city. And what's it say, church? He wept over it. What's Jesus weeping over? Is it the cross that he will face in Jerusalem? Is it the pain and suffering that he will face? I don't think so. I don't think so because this was always his mission. You see, Jesus is king of all. He has mastered time. He knows what's coming. He knows what's ahead of him. He knows the beating he will face. And he knows what will happen to him on the cross. I don't think he weeps for the pain that he will suffer. Well, if he won't weep for the pain that he will suffer, what is he weeping for, right? Remember back when we were working through the story of the prodigal son? Who remembers that sermon? Raise your hand if you remember that sermon on the prodigal son. Remember, remember who the main character was in the prodigal son? Who was it? Tell me who it was. It was, the, was it the prodigal son? It's the elder brother, right? Because he's making an extension and an offer of grace and salvation to whom there? The Pharisee is the elder brother, right? And what's Jerusalem full of at the Passover? It's full of Pharisees, isn't it? All the Pharisees of the nation. The men who sat where Moses sat and should know who he is and where he's, why he is there. And he is weeping. Why? He is weeping because he looks and he sees the vast unbelief. He looks and he sees the opportunity that is lost and is staring them directly in the face. He looks and he sees the revelation that was given to them that he would be born of a virgin, that he would ride in, as Zechariah 9.9 says, on a donkey, and it's happening right in front of them. It is The scriptures are being fulfilled by their eyes, like they're seeing it happen. And he is seeing them know the scripture and ignore it. Over the imminent judgment that they will face as those who've had the law and rejected it. And rejected the prophecy. Jesus does not weep for the cross he faces. 
but for those who reject its grace. Do we? What must I do if this is true? If Jesus is truly the King of all creation, not just the Jews, not just humanity, but all creation, as He has said He is here. Well, I would say at a minimum this. This is true, and I believe it is. First of all, we must take the opportunity to welcome Him. The Pharisees and many of those that were in Jerusalem with those two million people are going to give us Barabbas, let his blood be on us, crucify him. Many of the two million will be in that crowd. They reject him, even though they see the scriptures fulfilled in front of them. Don't be in that crowd. Be in the crowd that cries out to him as king. Make him king of your life. Welcome him in as they should have. Second of all, I must accept the testimony of the Scriptures. As we said every Sunday, you probably get tired of me saying the inerrant, infallible Word of God. Saying the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the Word of God endures forever. You know why I say that every week? You see these kids in here? I want them to have a framework to remember how true and right this book is. It's not just another book. This is the Word of God. We must accept this testimony that we've seen from the Word of God this morning. There is no book of antiquity that has near the amount of evidence and truth and factual reality that this book has. And we must run to the grace of Him who bore our judgment. We must run to His grace on the cross. See, here's the reality of this passage. This is the truth that is here today for me and for you. And the truth is this. My greatest hope Your greatest hope, our greatest hope, is simply this, is that we are conquered by King Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we bow before you and we thank you for this text today. Lord, if we did not proclaim who you were, we know the mountains that surround us would, that the rocks and the trees that surround us on all sides would call out, let our King come. Lord, as we look in this passage, may our souls be moved. May our desires be moved. May we lose an appetite for the things that please self. And may we move to an appetite for the things that please our King, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross so that we may have life and may have grace. We thank you for this passage. It is a picture of the two choices as you approach to either cry out to you as our King or to reject you and remain far from God. Help us all to turn to you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you're here today and you're, you're not here by accident, you're, maybe you're watching this online, you're streaming this, you have, you've received an invitation today. You have heard it proclaimed. Jesus is King. He's not just some guy that lived in Israel years ago. He's not some fable made up. Uh, historic evidence makes that very clear. He is King of all. You know, I want to share something with you. This week I found a video, a little short video that was intriguing to me. It was Stan Lee and Larry King having a conversation. Both those men are dead now. Does anybody know who those two guys are? Stan Lee and Larry King? You know what they were talking about? They were talking about what happens when we die. Larry King asked Stanley, he said, Stanley, what do you think happens when we die? 
Stan Lee said, I just think there's nothing. It's like going to sleep and not dreaming. But I can't imagine forever nothingness. You know why? And then Larry King agrees with him. He said, I agree with you, but I, ha- I, can't, remember, I can't imagine nothing forever. It's because you weren't built to imagine nothing forever. See, you were made in the image of God. The Bible tells us that he put eternity in the hearts of men and women and boys and girls. You weren't designed to think that way. It like breaks your software. If you're a software guy, right? You can't think of nothingness for eternity because you're not built that way. Won't you come to Christ? Won't you have that confidence? Won't you trust Him? Please stand as we sing in response.